0: Hello, and welcome to a new episode in the New Books and Gender Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network. My name is Kyle McMillan, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Professor Carrie Baker about her new book, Fighting the U.S. Youth Sex Trade, Gender, Race, and Politics. Professor, how are you doing today?
1: Good. Thank you.
0: So I want to start out uh, to let our listeners know a little bit more about you. Um, What is your sort of academic background, your trajectory, and what led you to write this book?
1: Okay, so I'm currently a professor and the director of the program in the study of women and gender at Smith College. I um, have a law degree from Emory University and a PhD in women's studies, also from Emory. And so my research and teaching focus on the areas of gender law, public policy, and feminist social movements. With a focus on sexual harassment, sex trafficking, and reproductive rights and justice. My first book, was was published in 1998, was called The Women's Movement Against Sexual Harassment. And in that book, I trace activism from the early 70s to Anita Hill on how the issue of sexual harassment got conceptualized and politicized and made illegal in the United States. And I trace legal cases and social movement groups and congressional hearings and um, all the way up to Anita Hill and how, so how that his, issue developed. Um, this current book kind of grows out of that in the sense that, um, you know, youth sex trafficking or youth, the youth sex trade also occurs at the intersection of economics, sexuality, gender, and race. Um, The way I got interested in this topic is I was living in the Atlanta area back in the early 2000s, and I went to a conference at Spelman College where a local um, government official, Stephanie Davis, who was working with Shirley Franklin's administration, Shirley was the mayor of Atlanta at the time, Stephanie gave a presentation on an initiative that Mayor Franklin was doing at the time where she was um, she'd become aware that there were high levels of youth involved in this in the sex trade in Atlanta, and she was very concerned about it and so she did a few things. She piloted a research project to try to map the existence of youth involvement in sex trade in Atlanta. She also um, went to the legislature at the time it was only a misdemeanor for an adult to pimp a a minor. And so they pushed to have that um, be taken more seriously. And they also did um, a public relations campaign around this issue. So I was very interested. I hadn't heard of this before. And so um, that spurred me to um, a couple years later, I was writing for Ms. Magazine, and I decided to do a story on the topic. And in 2010, my story was published. It was called Jailing Girls for Men's Crimes. And for that story, I interviewed activists all around the country uh, who were working on this issue, Um, folks in New York City and Texas and California, as well as in Atlanta. And I wrote this story and, um, you know, got a sense of that there was this big movement happening all around. Um, And so about five years later, when I was getting ready to write my next book, I thought, you know, I want to know more about this movement. I want to go further back in time and see what the precursors to it were. And then to sort of follow how this issue has been addressed over time. And that was, that ended up being this book.
0: Yeah. And one of the uh, most interesting facets, just right off the bat, when you start this book is how far back you start that, that look into history. So you, you sort of begin in the early, 20th century, what was happening then? And what themes in the sort of social movements against the U.S. youth sex trade, what was happening and sort of what were the discourses around that time?
1: So in the first chapter of the book, it's, it's, I look for the roots of the current movement going all the way back into the 19th century. And, you know, adult anxiety about the sexual behavior of young people probably has existed forever. I mean, it certainly has deep roots. And so I looked at several movements in the late 19th century and early 20th century where adults were um, organizing and passing laws related to youth sexual behavior um, or youth uh, sexual victimization of youth. And a few of the movements that I talk about in the book that I think are important precursors are uh one is the 19th century campaign against criminal seduction and this was when an adult man proposed to a young woman to lure her into having sex and then would break off the engagement after the sex and at the time it sort of ruining her for uh you know marriage and um activists sort of middle class activists got very concerned about this and pa- all around the country passed what were called criminal seduction laws that would basically make men that did this um, legally responsible and try to dissuade this kind of behavior. Another example in the 19th century was um, what was at the time called the White Slavery Movement, which really that's a euphemism for prostitution, although the movement did focus primarily on white women, and it was an attempt to try to suppress prostitution. And many of the people involved in that were concerned that young women were being lured into prostitution by devious men. And this was an attempt to try to protect them from that. Um, And then a third campaign I look at is the early 20th century's um, age of consent law campaigns. Now, these laws today, we call them statutory rape laws. But at the time, they were called age of consent laws, and basically they were laws that would say if a female, and at the time they were only applicable to females, if she was under a certain age, she could not legally consent to sex. So if an older man had sex with her, it was a crime it was rape, whether or not she consented or not. And again, it was an attempt to try to protect young women from older men and to try to dissuade older men from targeting young women um, for sex. So all three of these um, campaigns, I think, reflect this concern that we see later in the 20th century, concern about young women in particular being sexually targeted and victimized by older men and the attempt to sort of protect them using criminal law. And, um, uh, you know, I look at some of the language and framing of these early campaigns and the legal precedents that they set and how they were used later in the 20th century.
0: Yeah. So maybe, uh, this would be a good opportunity to talk about language because you do um, sort of front load, I, I believe it's in your introduction, sort of the talk or the uh, sort of uh, the importance of what language we're using when describing these social movements and sort of the subsequent laws and ways that, you know, we start talking about this in our sort of current day. So what sort of language was being um used sort of in these very early movements? or And then what did that sort of lead into once we get to sort of the mid-20th century?
1: Well, so some of the language I, I just mentioned is the some of the ways it was framed, like white slavery. I mean, the idea is it distinguished it from Black slavery, which was, you know, the the, what the term slavery in this country, people associated with the um, slavery of African Americans in the South before the Civil War, um, by using the term white slavery, not only were they indicating that it was, you know, their focus was white young women being targeted, but also making a parallel and saying this is a form of slavery. They're not doing this willingly. They're being locked up, coerced, forced. And I think, um, you know, that kind of framing is not has been not, not uncommon when focused on young people in, in sort of denying young people's agency around sexual behavior and framing them as, as victimized or as not responsible and therefore needing to be protected or saved or rescued. And all of that kind of language revives In the late 20th century and early 21st century, a lot of people talk about contemporary prostitution as a form of slavery or um, they conflate sex trafficking and prostitution and call it all modern day slavery. And there's been a lot of critiques of these kinds of conflations and um, co-optations of language um, in the late 20th century and and early 21st century. those questions around agency and responsibility, um, are what is reflected in the different kinds of language that's used at different periods of time. And an example is so the first, um, or the, the chapters two, three, and four are focused on three different time periods the 70s, the 90s, and the early 2000s. And in each time period, the issue of youth involvement in the sex trade gets framed in a different way. And that framing is indicative of how people are thinking about what's going on. So in the 70s, if you looked at newspapers talking about this issue, they would talk about child prostitution or teen prostitutes or teen hookers, In the 90s, when people were talking about this issue, they would use the phrase commercial sexual exploitation of children. In the 2000s, advocates talked about domestic minor sex trafficking. Each of those terms, if, if you think about it, have very different implications. The term child prostitute is basically holding the young person responsible for what's happening and giving them really strong sense of agency. You know, a teen hooker, you basically, you know, this is a bad kid. She's maybe a delinquent. She knows what she's doing. She's doing it because she wants to. She's maybe defying her parents or other adults in the community, running away. She's truant. You know, there's a a real blame there um, against her. Uh, What the movement did between the 70s and the 90s is try to reframe that. And say that young people involved in the sex trade aren 't bad kids they 're not criminals that they are victims, and that they are targeted by exploitative adults to um, you know make money off of them or to you know exploit them, and that um, you know it it tries to shift the framing entirely um, by the twenty by the twentieth um, century, you have the language of child sex trafficking or domestic minor sex trafficking, which puts it in, uh, moves it away from kind of an individual youth being targeted to a system and focusing on how this is a structural system. This is a, a network, a, you know, it sort of evokes organized crime or systems that make youth vulnerable. And so the language is very important and I focus throughout the book a lot on how, language was used by the media or activists or members of Congress or state legislators and how that language often reflected how they were thinking and framing the issue of youth involvement in the sex trade.
0: Yeah. And speaking of those activists, you know, even going back to the, you know, 19th and early 20th century, those that were sort of advocating these different issues seem to be um, sort of a strange conglomerate of of different interests uh, kind of converging all at once. And as you go through the book, those connections seem to almost grow stranger and more diverse um, in terms of the coalitions being built. So who was making up sort of the activism sort of going back to the 19th and early 20th century? And how did that evolve as we then move forward?
1: Yeah. I mean, an argument I make throughout this book is that this issue is an issue that attracts all kinds of people. Uh, it's not just, a, you know, a conservative issue or a liberal issue or a feminist issue or a anti-feminist issue. It's really um all different kinds of people have been concerned about this issue for different reasons and have come together, not always comfortably, but uh, have worked side by side for common goals like to pass a law or to raise funds to create a shelter. I draw in my book on uh, social movement scholar Nancy Whittier's uh, concept of a collaborative adversarial movement. Um, Nancy has defined this concept to be the relationships between collaborating ideologically opposed movements. So, um, for example, an adversarial collaborative movement, they don't share kind of similar ideologies or a collective identity. Um, They don't even have overlapping constituencies or coordinated actions, but they share a common, specific or even a long term goal for different reasons and through different specific policies. Um, And so it's it's a movement where there's kind of a mixture of cooperation and conflict. And certainly this issue has reflected that. Um, I talk in, in, you know, for instance, you know, and this is really, I think, as you say, over the course of the book, it becomes clearer and clearer and more and more, um, obvious. But, um, in the, you know, 2000s and the last 15 years, it's this really, really interesting mix of different kinds of people, including feminists and conservatives, people motivated by religious conviction as well as activists motivated by human rights concerns. Um, and some of these diverse activists, again, have worked side by side um, while maintaining their distinctions. And other times they vigorously oppose each other, but they are all working on the same issue. Um, they've, you know, they frame the issue in very different ways to try to motivate their own constituencies and, uh you know reach different kinds of legislators across the political spectrum an example would be um f- the feminist group coalition against trafficking in women they're uh kind of a what you'd call a radical feminist group and they frame the issue in terms of male violence against women and girls and they condemn the commodification of female bodies and the sexualization of popular culture the sort of sexual objectification of women and girls in popular culture on the other hand, in the movement, you have law and order conservatives who frame the issue as a crime control problem, and want to pass tougher laws and fund cops to go out and you know arrest um, adults who are exploiting youth. You have evangelicals. This has been this issue has been particularly interesting and attractive to evangelicals who have mobilized broadly on this issue. But they often frame it as uh, reflective of society's declining moral values and the lost innocence of young people. They often talk about this issue in terms of redemption and saving girls and protecting them um, from sexual abuse. But they also often focusing on trying to control girls and, um, you know, that maybe some young girls are misled and they need to be um, kind of reined in. Um, others, uh, approach this issue from a human rights framework. They focus on how the criminal justice and child welfare systems have failed young people in this country. And they, they focus on issues like child poverty and abuse, racism and sexism, and say that we need to change these broader systems in society that deny people human rights and that make people vulnerable, youth vulnerable to um involvement in the sex trade. Others, um, a number of people in the movement who are African American women, have framed the issue of youth involvement in the sex trade as a form of racism, with roots going back to nineteenth century slavery. And they talk about how young girls of color in particular are vulnerable because we live in such a racist society, and that we've got to tackle racism if we're really going to tackle the commercial sexual exploitation. Of youth. Um, and then there's folks that are coming from a uh, more uh, progressive or radical kind of harm reduction approach. An example of a group like that is um, was the Chicago-based group Young Women's Empowerment Project, which was youth-led and used peer counselors and adopted a kind of non-judgmental harm reduction approach um, and got youth to figure out sort of self- Help and and peer support strategies to try to um, support youth who are engaged in street economies, including the sex trade. And you know they didn't see young people as as victims. They saw them as doing the best that they could do to survive a hostile society. Um, often they focus on LGBTQ youth, which usually um, those youth are not focused at all by the mainstream movement. And so, you know, all of these different groups with very different framings and strategies and con- constituencies are all working on the same issue. Um, and I just, I thought that was really, really interesting. So I I sort of trace that complicated, um, fraught uh, network of social movement organizations. Um, and, you know, I I definitely look at it in earlier periods, but my focus is, um, kind of the late um 20th century and early 21st century.
0: Yeah, and you know, even though you have a diverse set of interests sort of going toward these common goals, one of the things that um you know, especially rings true once we're once you get to the sort of more contemporary aspects of the book, but you seem to find that at each of these flashpoints where these movements sort of really pick up steam, there are commonalities in terms of what's happening in the broader scope of society. So what, what are those sort of commonalities that lead to, toward sort of a um, more public reckoning with this issue?
1: So I argue in the book that concern about youth involvement in the sex trade has tended to spike during times of social change, like surges in immigration, racial integration, and changing gender roles and sexual norms. Uh, But what I argue is that these changes generate anxiety about youth sexuality, especially girls, and potential sexual victimization. So, for instance, in the late 19th century campaigns, I argue that increased um, industrialization, urbanization, and immigration, uh, as well as increasing female participation in the labor force, generated anxieties about shifting gender and race relations. So, you know, in late 19th century, you had the first wave of the women's movement. You had women pushing for broader roles in society. You had a huge influx of young women into the, into um, factories working, um, you know, moving from farms into cities or industrial area areas, excuse me, areas, living in dormitories, um, you know, primarily hanging out with other people their own age, um, earning their own money, having some independence, being away from their parents, all of that created a lot of anxiety. And so when you see things like um, activism around criminal seduction, or white slavery, or um, uh, age of consent laws, all of that was the attempt by anxious parents to kind of rein in or protect Young women in particular. In addition, during that time period, you had massive waves of immigration. And you had, it was post Civil War, you had, um, you know, uh, uh, young white girls more likely to encounter men and boys, not of their own race or class background. And parents were very anxious about that. And so that that concern about trying to control or protect young women's sexuality, I think, were connected to those anxieties. Of course, there was also at the time a broader, um, you know, concern about the maintenance of white supremacy and the, um, you know, when you had massive waves of immigration, immigrants having more children than than the native-born whites. I think there was a lot of of you know racism and concern about. Uh, foreign men and men of color uh, targeting young white men, excuse me, young white women. Um, I think this is part of what fueled the white slavery movement. A lot of times the way that issue was framed, and I, I get into this in a little detail in my book, was that foreign men coming from abroad and luring native white girls from rural areas into prostitution. And this narrative, um, I argue in the book, Gets rearticulated in the seventies and again in the nineties and even in the two thousands. The same sort of racialized narrative, and so I'll, I'll talk more about that in a minute. But um, in the in the seventies, um, the the social changes that were going on that again I think made people concerned about um, youth young people's sexuality was of course the sexual revolution. Um, the women's rights movement, the civil rights movement, all of the social change movements that were going on in the seventies where young people were rebelling against adults, were challenging social norms, particularly around sexuality. I talk a lot in chapter um, two about um, changing social norms around sexuality. The percentage of young people who were having pre- premarital sex went up significantly in the 70s. The percentage of young people think that thought it was okay to have premarital sex went up. And, and again, um, this created a lot of anxiety among adults about what was going on um, and youth sexual behavior. And And again, the concern that girls, young women were maybe being victimized by these new norms these new sexual norms um, in addition of course it was a time of racial integration um, I, I trace you know court decisions like the 1967 loving versus Virginia case which legalized intermi- interracial marriage um, and other kinds of you know um, pushes for integration in society um, in the 70s the issue of youth involvement in the sex trade uh, frequently got framed in terms of a African American man uh, approaching a young, innocent, naive white girl and luring her into prostitution. And this was a a very prevalent theme in the the media portrayal of the issue and in some activists' framing of the issue. Other things going on in the 70s were things like um, the deinstitutionalization of uh, delinquent youth. So youth that were apprehended for truancy or other kinds of misbehavior before the 70s were often detained in reformatories or other kinds of institutions that would control them, often until they were 21, because the age of majority at the time was 21. And particularly for girls, girls that were perceived to be acting out sexually or rebelling were often put into these reformatories to sort of for their own protection. Well, a number of legal developments happened in the 1970s. One is the age of majority got moved to, the, to 18, and that was a result of the Vietnam War. But also, the Supreme Court issued a number of decisions that basically said you can't detain young people without uh, a hearing, that young people have due process rights as well as older people, and you can't just detain them and lock them up without that they have due process rights and so that made it much harder to detain people and in addition there was a move to um, deinstitutionalize youth anyway because people felt like this was not a very effective way of dealing with youth youth misbehavior and there was a push more towards like community centers where where youth would stay if they couldn't stay at home for whatever reason and so Basically, youth became deinstitutionalized. And um, the way I describe it in in my book is that, um, see if I can find where I talk about it, but I I, I say that um, basically that it sort of created a a perfect storm of young people who were, you had increasing homelessness, you had um, the youth rebellions of the 1960s and 70s, Um, you know, the summer of love. You had a lot of youth that were running away from home and they were on the street and there weren't a lot of social services out there for young people. So a lot of the ways that that young people would support themselves were by engaging in the sex trade and that generated a lot of anxiety among adults. Um, So again, um, those sort of broader things that were happening... Um uh, one other thing that was happening is that the Supreme Court interpreted the First Amendment to provide some protection for pornography. and so porn shops began to open up, and um, pornographic theaters began to open up, and you had sort of a uh, proliferation of pornography, and it became much more visible. And one group of people that got active around youth involvement in the sex trade noticed that a lot of pornography portrayed young people and children. And so they mobilized around that issue. Um, so I think those were some of the things that were going on in the 70s. In the 90s, again, some of the same things. You had the internet, uh, which came around in the mid-1990s, which was um, definitely fueled by pornography, but fueled the growth of pornography. And adults were very concerned about young people seeing that or being lured to run away from home through chat rooms, or being targeted by adult men. Um, You also had all the social changes that were going on, again, in society around um, sort of the post-9-11 anxieties around terrorism and immigration. And um, I sort of trace through the book how those kinds of anxieties may have played into adult concern about uh, youth involvement in the sex trade. And even just the anti-trafficking movement globally, I think, um, was a factor in people beginning to really focus on what was happening here as far as young people in the sex trade.
0: Yeah. And I I think one of the things that was particularly interesting when getting to, uh, sort of in the chronology, the later 20th century, early 21st century, was this sort of um, interesting dynamic between international focus and domestic focus. Um, And I think, uh, at least when I was reading your book and sort of thinking along with it, one of the things that kept popping into my mind are sort of the instances where popular culture sort of portrays um, human trafficking or other sort of, you know, aspects of this um, theme of your book. And, you know, it's certainly films like the the Taken series with Liam Neeson sort of uh, portrays this international sort of um, human trafficking um, ring, if you will. So in the 90s, why, why was it that we had this sort of um, more global focus and then it becomes more domestic? And um, within that, how does um, you also talk about how survivor narratives sort of shape Um, the conversations around this time as well.
1: Yeah. So after the seventies, there were, there were a number of changes that occurred in the seventies. Congress passed some laws addressing this issue. Um, there were a lot of social services organizations that opened up, um, often with support of the federal government. But when Reagan got into the, um, White House in 1980, he rolled back a lot of that. He was a very law and order conservative and he pushed back against the deinstitutionalization of youth. He pushed actually for addressing youth, uh, misbehavior through arresting them and prosecuting them and locking them up. He also defunded a lot of these social service programs. So after the seventies, um, you know, there were fewer and fewer services for youth, and there was, and it was more and more likely that they were going to end up incarcerated if they were on the street. In the 90s, a number of different organizations popped up that were formed by survivors, uh, women who had experienced prostitution, um, many of whom experienced it as children or young, you know, teenagers, who realized that there were not services in the community and began to create organizations to, um, to help young people. Um, these were, were people like Rachel Lloyd, who formed an organization called GEMS, Girls in Educational Mentoring Services in New York City. Um, Vandita Carter, who started a group called Breaking Free in Minneapolis. Um, Norma Hodling in San Francisco, who started a group called SAGE, Um, uh, and these groups um, began, you know, often they were kitchen table operations, and they just um, would try to raise money and sometimes take these young people into their homes, other times try to create shelters in the community, and it was this group of activists that plugged into a global movement that was starting to address the issue of the commercial sexual exploitation of children. These U.S. activists plugged into this global movement and began to go to these global conferences on what came to be known as the commercial sexual exploitation of children. And this um, grew out of a group that was formed in Bangkok in 1990 called ECPAT, which stood for Ending Child Prostitution in Asian Tourism. And ECPAT, along with UNICEF and another group called the NGO Rights of the Child, organized the First World Congress Against the Commercial Sexual Exploitation of Children in 1996 in Stockholm. And this Congress was uh, a number of U.S. activists attended this conference and learned about this global movement and learned about how people around the world were framing this issue, organizing around it, and trying to fight it. And in 1996, one of those activists, Carol Smolensky, came back to the U.S. and formed a U.S. branch of ECPAT called ECPAT USA and began to organize in the U.S. Um, There was an international summit for sexually exploited youth in 1998, in Victoria, British Columbia, and a number of US activists attended that, including Rachel Lloyd, who is the founder, was the founder of GEMS. And they began to, the US activists began to think of the um, the issue as commercial sexual exploitation of children, and use the analysis and the strategies from this global movement, and begin to um, sort of Organize a broader movement here in the U.S. And um, at the same time, there was a broader U.S. anti tra- or U.S. anti trafficking movement, as well as global anti trafficking movement, that focused not just on children but adults as well. And in the U.S., um, you know, the group began to push for a federal law against human trafficking, and that movement very much. Envisioned the problem as something that happened somewhere else, not in the United States. It was the movement of people from Southeast Asia to Europe or from the former Soviet Union to Europe. Sometimes it was framed as people being brought into the United States, but, but not really. It was really seen as an, as an international problem that happened elsewhere. But the U.S. decided that they really needed to take A leadership role on this issue. And to do that, we needed to have a federal law. And so activists here in the United States, and it was quite a broad range of groups, it was people like um, Polaris Project and Shared Hope International, Protection Project. Hillary Clinton was very involved in this initiative. Um, Michael Horowitz, you know, real conservative people. Chris Smith from New Jersey, the senator. And they all pushed for uh, what came to be called the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, uh, which passed in 2000. Now, people working with U.S. youth thought this could be an opportunity for them to get attention to the commercial sexual exploitation of youth in the U.S. Because a lot of the anti-trafficking um, discussion was about the exploitation of youth in other countries. And so they thought, okay, why don't we push for this law and maybe it can be helpful for addressing the problem of U.S. youth exploited here in the United States. And so they formed what was called uh, the U.S. Campaign Against Commercial Exploitation of Children. And they lobbied legislators. They brought young people, U.S. citizens who had been in the sex trade to come and speak with legis- with members of Congress. Um, they, um, you know, organized people to call their legislators and push for this law. And the law did, as I say, pass in 2000. And it defined sex trafficking, you know, very broadly. Um, it defined it to include um, basically the commercial sexual exploitation of an adult by force, fraud, or coercion, or the involvement of anybody under the age of 18 in the sex trade. So that meant you didn't have to cross national borders or state borders. You didn't have to um, be forced. If an adult sort of got a young person involved in prostitution, that fell under the definition of human trafficking under the TVPA. And so activists used this to try to get more attention to youth involvement in the sex trade in the United States. They also um, they failed, though, in getting Congress to allocate any funds for services for youth, for U.S. youth. All of the funds allocated under the act were to go towards international organizations working on the issue, Some of it went towards U.S.-based organizations that were serving international victims coming into the U.S., but it was very much framed as a problem happening somewhere else, not here. And so, the task that was set for these activists that were concerned about youth involved in the in prostitution here in the United States was to try to expand the framework and get folks in the U.S. to realize that what was happening abroad was very similar to what was happening here in the United States, which was not easy.
0: All right. And I I want you to talk about, um, just for a little bit, if you will, sort of the challenge of the movement, sort of working to convince people from shifting their framework or the way they're thinking about this issue from more of a victim-blaming or sort of blaming framework into sort of the victim framework, which I know we've touched on a little bit up until now. But I, I wondered if you wanted to speak more about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the movement um of people involved, you know, concerned about youth involved in the sex trade had a challenge to try to convince people that the issue they cared about was the same as sex trafficking, right? A lot of people saw um, minors in the United States involved in the sex trade as bad kids, as juvenile delinquents. They didn't see it, you know, whereas they were sympathetic to a young child in Cambodia involved in prostitution, and they saw adults in in Cambodia exploiting that child. In the United States, they were much more likely to say, oh, these kids are just bad kids. They need to be put in detention center and taught how to behave. And so people like Rachel Lloyd and others were you know, had a, ch- when they were trying to leverage this trafficking framework and, you know, get people to see youth involvement in the U.S. sex trade as domestic minor sex trafficking, they made a number of arguments. One of those arguments was, um, you know, why are you caring about youth in the sex trade abroad, but not here in the United States? So an example is Rachel Lloyd testified before Congress in 2010 and she said the following. She said, as a nation, we've graded and rated other countries on how they address trafficking within their own borders and yet have efficiently, effectively ignored the sale of our own children within our own borders. Katya from the Ukraine will be seen as a real victim and provided with services and support. But Keisha from the Bronx will be seen as a willing participant, someone who's out there because she likes it and who is criminalized and thrown in detention or jail. So she, she raised the, the issue of the disparate treatment of U.S. and international youth. And by the way, suggests sort of racial bias in that treatment. But she also, um, you know, is trying to say these young people aren't bad kids. They're being victimized. They're not criminals if they're arrested for prostitution and they're 13, 14 years old. They're, being victimized by adults in their lives or failed by the social systems that are supposed to be helping them. Other arguments that they made is that they noted the contradiction between federal law and the state treatment of youth. Whereas this new Trafficking Victims Protection Act defined sex trafficking to include any involvement of youth under the age of 18 in the sex trade, states often arrested and prosecuted youth involved in prostitution. Um, you know, if a 15, 16 year old girl was caught, you know, propositioning somebody for sex, she would be prosecuted for prostitution. And what advocates argued is this is a contradiction. That prostitution laws are not meant to be enforced against young people. People that are, you know, 12, 13, 14, which they have been prosecuted. Um, and that they, that, you know, It was meant for adults, not for children. And, and so they, they sort of exploited that tension between federal law and state law. In addition, many states have statutory rape laws, but they, um, you know, which assume the inability of youth under a certain age to consent to sex. Yet often minors under that age were being prosecuted for prostitution. And so they kind of highlighted the contradiction in the law in one part of the code. You're a minor. You're, you're young enough that you can't even consent to sex, whereas in another part, you're being prosecuted for prostitution. And so that was another argument they made. And, and then a third one is the sort of hypocrisy of arresting a 14-year-old for prostitution, but letting her adult exploiter go as a John with no, um, you know, without arresting him or just slapping him on the hand. And so this sort of double standard is one that um, that they kind of exploited and said this, you know, this doesn't make sense. Um, I started my um, the book with a story, actually, and it was a story that was based on a Texas case that was before the Supreme Court in 20. Um, let's see, it, it came down in 2010 and it, it began um, as, as follows. B.W. was 13 years old when she offered to perform oral sex for $20 on an undercover officer in Texas. The officer arrested her and booked her as an adult. Despite evidence that B.W. had a history of sexual and physical abuse, was living with a 32-year-old boyfriend under Texas law, was considered and under Texas law was considered incapable of consenting to sex because she was under 14, the county DA charged her with prostitution and obtained a conviction. Is a 13-year-old girl selling sex on the streets a criminal? And so, you know, this this case is sort of an example of where, you know, the states were prosecuting young people and treating them as criminals when it was pretty clear that these were kids that had been That had been failed by the adults in their lives and failed by the systems that were supposed to help them. And so it was cases like this that the movement put forward to try to convince people to have sympathy for these young people rather than just, um, continuing arresting them and detaining them and locking them up. And it was, it was these kinds of cases that really mobilized a lot of people to organize this movement and pretty successfully, as a result, they pass laws all around the country, like safe harbor laws, which prohibit enforcing prostitution laws against young people. And states vary on what the age is. Some it's 18, some it's 16. But um, about 35 states now have passed these kinds of laws that divert youth out of the criminal justice system and into social services to try to help them. Um, you know, and there were other kinds of laws that the movement has have gotten states to pass to try to fund services for youth and other things. And so um, these arguments really were quite successful, at least in getting the laws passed that these activists wanted.
0: Yeah, and you, you mentioned that, you know, this was quite the achievement and sort of the contemporary movement has achieved quite a lot, but that's not without sort of uh, criticisms of sort of the contemporary movement as well. And you sort of locate um, the criticisms into sort of like three main areas. So I was wondering if you could go over sort of what those criticisms are and what perspective are they coming from?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, like I say, the movement has had a pretty significant impact They have um, passed laws in many states. They've passed laws um, in Congress. Most recently, um, they passed the SESTA-FOSTA law, which has been very controversial, which is a law that prohibits um, online internet service providers from allowing advertisements for um, sexual services. And that was largely fueled by people concerned about youth involvement in the sex trade and the posting of ads for young people on places like Craigslist and Facebook, uh, excuse me, Craigslist and Backpage. And um, so, you know, the critiques of the movement uh, sort of fall in a number of different camps. Excuse me. One critique is that the dominant narrative of what happens to young people involved in the youth sex trade is inaccurate. Um, the, the sort of dominant narrative was this gendered, is this gendered tale of victims, villains, and heroes. Um, often the, the victimized person is an innocent young girl tricked or abduct, uh, abducted by a much older white man who exploits her until someone intervenes to rescue her. This narrative is very gendered. Um, it's framed often in terms of lost innocence. So the, the young girl is framed as, you know, very innocent as being lured by some adult away from her school or a mall or her home and that she's naive, that she's victimized and um, that she, you know, that she needs protection or she needs rescuing or saving. The the framing, the mainstream narrative also is highly racialized. In public discourses, the men who are responsible for luring young girls into prostitution are disproportionately portrayed as African-American men. If you look at any of the mainstream documentaries on the youth sex trade, like um, uh, Playground, which is on Netflix, or um, Tricked, which is another one on Netflix, often the victims are primarily white girls and the perpetrators are primarily portrayed as men of color. And um, in a lot of these, the girls are portrayed as sort of um, uh, taken advantage of and exploited. Many people have said that this is not an accurate portrayal of what happens, of why youth are involved in the sex trade. A number of critics have said that, often uh, the people that are involved in the sex trade are, are runaway youth or homeless youth because uh, who are running away from um, sexual abuse in the home or have been in the foster care system and have been abused and are running away, or they're LGBTQ youth that live in homophobic homes or schools and are running away from that. And that very rarely do they have adult exploiters, that often they're engaging in what's called survival sex, which means that they are selling sex to be able to afford food or to be able to um, access shelter. And this dominant narrative of kind of um, victims, villains, and heroes is a misperception of what's actually going on. And so Because we have this dominant narrative, the solution very heavily goes towards criminal justice interventions, pass um, tougher laws, fund cops to go out and arrest these guys, and um, lock up the perpetrators, and then provide services to the young people. And what this ignores is the sort of systemic problems that make youth vulnerable to um, involvement in the sex trade, things like poverty, things like homophobia, um, youth homelessness, uh, abuse in the home, failing schools. and so one critique is is that we really need to focus more on um, the ways in which our society doesn't serve the needs of youth and um, makes youth vulnerable to becoming involved in the commercial sex trade. Um, and so that, that's one critique is that, you know, there's this kind of moral panic about adult men exploiting young, innocent girls that leads to criminal justice solutions, you know, kind of get tough on crime solutions, but that in fact, most of youth involvement in the sex trade is not that at all, that it's this more, um, uh, you know, Gray kind of experience where um, you know the youth need a lot more than just some adult being locked up. That they need um, social service supports and and sort of um, you know and and changing the criminal justice system so they don't arrest adults. I mean, d- don't arrest the youth involved in the sex trade is good. But what some people have argued is that it it's not actually treating the youth all that much differently that still, even if they're not put in detention, that often they're put in social services that are very restrictive and very problematic and not addressing their needs, that they're often sort of surveilling young people and controlling young people, but not actually empowering young people. Another critique of the movement is that the negative impacts that it has on adult sex workers. So for instance, SESTA-FOSTA and the elimination of the ability of people selling sex to advertise online pushes uh, prostitution back onto the streets, which is much more dangerous for adults engaged in prostitution. So the sex worker rights movement has very much objected to some of the, um, some of the results of this movement. Um, and then just more generally, um, sort of people on the progressive end of things have critiqued the ways in which the anti-trafficking movement has fueled the buildup of the criminal justice system and, you know, kind of filled the coffers of police stations and prosecutors, but that there's not enough money that's going into social services to help people that are involved in these kind of situations, or not enough doing to sort of address societal inequalities that, that contribute to people's vulnerability to exploitation in the sex trade.
0: Yeah. And I know we've taken up a lot of your time today, so I kind of have just a couple of last questions to wrap up here with. Um, The first one is, and I know that, you know, your book talks about a lot of different aspects of this um, sort of societal um, problem and discourse and et cetera. And, I was wondering if you could distill down for the listeners sort of one big takeaway you'd like them to have after reading your book. Your book, What would that be?
1: So, you know, I've taught a class here at Smith College for the last about 10 years called Sex, Trade, and Trafficking. And what I tell my students often at the end of the semester is that my goal for the class is to get them to see the issue in in all of its complexity. A lot of people, when they come to this issue, they see it in black and white. They see it in terms of there's a good guy, there's a bad guy, and it's clear what needs to be done. You know, when you're talking about child prostitution, obviously it's a horrible thing, right? If you're talking about the commercial sexual exploitation of a 12-year-old in the sex trade, I mean, it's very easy to say, oh, this is terrible. Let's find the people that are doing it, lock them up. But what I, you know, my goal is to try to get people to see that it's not a simple issue. It's a very complicated issue. How young people get to the situation. How, what's going on in our society that allows this to happen. How do we, how do we solve the problem? Um, it's, it's, it's not easy. It takes real uh, social change of systems in our society. Um, it involves things like racism. I think a lot of people are reluctant to see the way that race factors into this issue, Um, both the, the racism that makes, make young people vulnerable in society, but also the racism that makes movements want to portray the perpetrators as always um, African-American and not see the, the ways in which it's, it's a much broader problem. So um I guess I would, you know, really want people to under to understand the centrality of race to this issue and understand how it's a structural problem, not just a problem of crime control
0: yeah that's that's certainly an excellent point that you make in your book um, and I know that uh, our listeners will you know pick up your book, you know find it very interesting um, but if they get really interested in this topic and they want to check out sort of more. Um, books either related to or sort of adjacent to what you wrote about, What what are three book recommendations that you could give our listeners today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few that I would recommend. The first is Jennifer Musto's book, Control and Protect, Collaboration, Carceral Protection, and Domestic Sex Trafficking in the United States. What Jennifer does in this book is that she interviewed police officers, social service agencies, and youth and tried to find out what happens to youth once they get into the system. And, you know, one of her critiques is that safe harbor laws don't actually, you know, that even though kids aren't being arrested for prostitution, that they're still being treated in really punitive ways, and that we really need to think harder about what the correct response is to uh, youth involvement in the sex trade. Another book is Alexandra Lupnick's book, Domestic Minor Sex Trafficking. This is an excellent book which does a deep dive into the research on who are the youth involved in sex trafficking, how do they get there, and what do they see as their own needs. Um, Alex uh, really talks a lot about how in our society we make young people particularly vulnerable because they are so, they have so little autonomy. Um, They can't rent an apartment on their own. They can't often get a job on their own. If they go and access social services, the social services will call their parents or their foster parents who were often the abusive people they ran away from. And so as a result, a lot of homeless youth can't access any social services. And so she has a really interesting discussion and recommendations about how better to address some of these systemic problems that make youth vulnerable to the sex trade. And then finally, a third book by Carissa uh, Shodin and Samantha Magic, a book called Youth Who Trade Sex in the U.S., Intersectionality, Agency, and Vulnerability. And this book, too, looks at what are the issues for young people involved in the sex trade? And what is the best way to address those issues? So, you know, my book really is a history. um, But these three are much more kind of um, on the ground. Uh, Let's look at what's happening now and making recommendations for the future. So I strongly recommend all three of those.
0: Yeah. And I think in conjunction with your sort of excellent um, history, as as you've rightly pointed out of this issue sort of makes for an excellent sort of back and forth conversation between all those books. Um, And with that, I just want to reiterate for everyone to go and check out Fighting the U.S. Youth, Sex, Trade, Gender, Race, and Politics. Professor Baker, thank you so much for joining us here on the New Books Network.
1: Thank you so much. It was my pleasure.